opposition anyways. Um, we've been studying for Advent, we've been studying the four servant songs covered in the book of Isaiah. And uh, last week I took a little bit of a detour, sorry, uh, not sorry. Um, and this week, so this week we'll cover actually the, the fourth song. The four songs that, that, we've, that we've learned from Isaiah, the first one was the song of justice. And we saw justice not so much as the setting, the setting, or the setting of right to wrong or the setting of, yeah, setting, how am I get? How do I get that? How do I get where I'm going? Um, making things right. There we go. Um, but more of a setting us back into the right order, putting us back into a, our original condition. We saw the mission. The second song, we saw the mission of the servant. That is, his mission would be worldwide. It would be global. The third song was a song of faithfulness. And this is so important. The song of faithfulness that Christ, or the servant, I should say, the servant would live a perfectly faithful life in complete obedience to God. Today, we are going to look at the last song, and it is the song of suffering. We took a little detour last week, and we saw the song of Advent, and it was more of a prelude. It's kind of the background, if you will, to this song of suffering. But today, we want to look at the final song. It's in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. It would be, I would say, the magnum opus of the servant songs. It is perhaps one of the most important texts in all of the Bible. If somebody were to argue with me that it is perhaps the most important text in Scripture, um, I think they could put forth a very, very strong and persuasive case for that. So let me just detail a little bit about the the third song before we get to this fourth song, because the third song leads up or or contributes so... um, so much to this fourth song. Remember, the third song was that the life of the was the was the song of faithfulness, and in the song of faithfulness, the servant is the one who has absolute and complete faithfulness to God. And we learn the importance of Christ living for our righteousness. Remember, Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. Think about that. What is the two great commandments? Or the two great commandments. Number one, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, anybody know? All right, think about that. How have you done on that just today? Christ, throughout his entire life on earth, fulfilled those two commandments 100% perfectly. It's an amazing thing. He lived in complete obedience to the Father, fulfilled the law perfectly. The importance of that is that we cannot, as we move through the Advent and Christmas season, we cannot leave the Christ child in the manger. Because his sinless life qualified him to be the perfect Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. So now we're going to focus on the final song, the song that highlights his perfect faithfulness by submitting to suffering and death, even death on a cross for our sins. Let me just state that this is a very complex passage of text. 
And so there is a lot of shifting between who the speaker is and who the, the, the recipient of the message is. And so there's a lot of uh, complexities going on. And I will just ask for your, um, your patience. We will not have opportunity to deal with all of the complexities, um, but we will uh, try to highlight and hit the high points of this rather dense passage of text. So my outline is very simple. My outline is going to be, we're going to look at the exaltation of the servant, the suffering of the servant, and then again, the exaltation of the servant. So if you will, would you follow along as I read our text today? This is Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 53, 12. This is the final song, the song of suffering. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. And this is God's holy and inerrant word. Our text begins with the exaltation of the servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, just a quick reminder, we have discussed over the past four weeks 
who the servant is. Many theories have been put forth. People have said it is Israel. People have said that it's Darius. People have said that it's Cyrus, the king of Persia. Um, People have said that it's the, the prophet Isaiah himself. But we've come to understand that nobody, nobody fulfills the prophecies. Israel doesn't doesn't meet the qualifications required of the servant. Certainly uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, or Darius, the the Median king, did not fit those requirements. We're going to see that further today. So who could it be? We put forth last week that the scriptures are very plain. The New Testament authors um, ascribe these texts to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who actually fulfills everything we found in servant song number one through three and certainly in this fourth servant song. And then finally, of course, Jesus said, all scripture points to me. So, um, we are putting forth that very clearly and plainly. I don't think it requires a whole lot of debate. Christ is the servant of the servant songs and he is this servant the servant who will act wisely. Now, some of your, your Bibles will say that he will succeed. And the idea here is, um, uh, of course, he will act wisely. If his actions are wise, they are of such a nature that his plans will come to pass. In other words, his plans will succeed. So we have to ask ourselves, if his plans are going to succeed, if he's going to ask, act wisely, what exactly is he going to succeed in? Well... Where context is important. Because we talked last week about the message that the herald would come. A herald was going to come dancing across the mountaintops. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And what was the good news? That the king is coming in peace and bringing salvation. And my servant is the one who will accomplish this task. All that was sung by the herald who came dancing across the mountaintops that was then repeated by the watchmen on the tower and then was sung by all of Jerusalem. This, these tasks will be accomplished by the servant. So we start off with my servant will be exalted. That's great. But then we look and we see that, wait a second, this servant is marred beyond comprehension that his physical um, Semblance, his human semblance is so marred and his form is so distorted beyond the children of men. So this exalted servant um, is somehow also one who is abused and beaten and so physically marred that we don't even really recognize this individual. This exalted one is the one who is broken physically. And yet at the same time, in verse 13, he is the one who will silence the nations. He is the one who will shut the mouths of kings and reveal to them things they never dreamed of. So this is these first few verses in chapter 52 is a bit of an introduction, introducing us to the servant. He is exalted by God. He's going to be marred beyond, uh, uh, beyond recognition. And yet by his work, he will shut the mouths of kings And he will declare things that people had never even dreamed of. So that's where we're at. You with me? Okay, so that's where we're going. Now we get into chapter 53, verses 1 through 9. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed our report? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been, been revealed? In other words, no one ever imagined. No one ever imagined this. In other words, the, the mode of victory, the mode by which the servant will achieve his plans, the mode by which he will succeed, is so unexpected, nobody even dreamed of it. This exalted one does not fit the expected image of a mighty conqueror. Look at this. He grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Who would believe our report? He grew up like a tender young plant. Something that we don't even take notice of. Frail, unimpressive, completely not royal. This exalted one doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like royalty. He doesn't look like a general. He is of no account. He is the one who we would normally just avoid or ignore. He doesn't look like royalty. He is no rock star. Who would ever believe that a carpenter from Nazareth would be the exalted king who secures our salvation? Remember Nathaniel? When he was told, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Look, we found the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth. And what was his response? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Who would believe this report that out of Nazareth, that podunk backwood town in northern Galilee, would ever produce the King of kings and Lord of lords who would secure your salvation? Who would believe our report? He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't come from royalty. I hear his dad was a carpenter. And his birth was a little questionable. This is our king. Who would believe our report? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I want you to take note of that phrase, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That is, despised and rejected. I want you to understand the theology. This is important that you understand the theology of the day. The theology of the day would, would conclude this, that a man who is so physically abused, who is so despised, so rejected, a man of sorrow and in grief, he must have done something so horrendous that God would inflict such physical damage on him. In other words, the theology of the day was very simple. Do good and God blesses you. Do bad and God punishes you. And he must have done something horrible. Because look at him. We don't even recognize the man. His physical, his physical nature is so marred we don't even know who he is. What kind of animal must this man have been? Think about it. The book of Job, we see this very clearly. Job, you must have done something wrong. You can't be righteous because otherwise you wouldn't be suffering the way you are. You must have done something wrong. Think about John chapter 9, right? The blind man. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Somebody sinned because he's not just blind because he did good things. 
Somebody did something wrong so that he would be blind. Paul, by the fire, right? A serpent fastens himself on Paul. And what was their conclusion? A murderer. He must have been a murderer. Because God is judging him. People are looking upon this individual, this servant, and saying, nobody could be abused and treated so poorly. The judgment of God is so severe on that man, I can't imagine what horrific crimes he must have committed to be deserving of such horrendous treatment. He is a man of sorrows, a man of grief. His appearance so marred behind human semblance despised and rejected by men, acquainted with grief. And as one, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I want you to take a very close look at chapter, or verses 4 through 6. A very close look because there is this completely unexpected exchange there is this completely unexpected shift. Nobody saw this coming. Who would believe this? Note, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. We're the ones who, like sheep, have gone astray. We're the ones who've turned everyone to his own way. And on him, our iniquity has been laid. I want you to note this drastic shift. The shift goes from this man must be cursed by God to be enduring such horrific treatment. And then the realization, wait a second. It's not his sin. It's our sin. Wait a second. He's the innocent one and we're the guilty one, but he's receiving all of the judgment. And there is this shock, if you will. We esteemed him not, but it turns out that we're the guilty ones and he's the innocent one. And yet he's enduring the suffering because of us. He is. He's not the one cursed by God. We're cursed by God. And this despised one is now bearing our sin. And he's suffering. He suffers and we benefit. He is a man of grief and sorrow, but there are griefs and sorrows. He's not suffering with us. Rather, he's suffering because of us. This is such a dramatic shift. And then it says, and the iniquities of all of our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This has very, very strong Old Testament imagery and it speaks of what we call substitutionary atonement. You should probably know that term. I'm not here to give you a vocabulary lesson, but you should at least understand the concept behind substitutionary atonement. It's a, it's a beautiful truth of Scripture that is often under attack, but you should know it when know it well. It is the foundation of the Christian faith. 
under the, the teaching and the, the biblical truth of substitutionary atonement, basically goes like this. The penalty that is due us is paid by a substitute. The penalty that is due to you and me is paid by somebody else. And you'll see this in Genesis chapter 3. You'll see it detailed in Leviticus chapter 4. So yes, when you read through the Bible in a year and you're reading through Leviticus and you're going, why is this here? Folks, do not miss what is going on in these very important books. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that's okay. And they tried to clothe themselves. And they clothed themselves with fig leaves, but God clothed them with animal skins. God said, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. They did not die. What did? An innocent victim paid the price for their sins. And we see this then in Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day in that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Romans 6.23, the first part. And the wages of sin is death. But since it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. These innocent victims, which were offered as a substitute for our sin, simply pointed forward to a perfect sacrifice the God man who would fulfill all of the law and die in our place. Bulls and goats cannot take away sin, but they were offered in faith in anticipation that one day God, in the fullness of time, God would send forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that in the fullness of time, one would come forth who, from the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent. Substitutionary atonement. Penalty due to us is paid by a substitute. Bulls and lambs and goats were offered in faith, but they all pointed forward to a time when there would be one sacrifice. And here we see the servant pays the penalty. The servant pays the penalty for our sin. Jesus Christ is the servant. And Jesus Christ pays our penalty. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Do you see the exchange? Do you see the substitution? The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Jesus Christ is the servant. He pays our penalty. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We saw him as stricken, smitten by God. We saw that he was being judged by God, but it's actually our transgressions that he is suffering. He's being crushed for our iniquities. 
His chastisement is bringing us peace. By his wounds, we're healed. And then it goes like this. And we, like sheep, are going astray. We have all turned away. I want you to pause for just a moment. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned away. This describes the condition of those for, who, for those whose sins the substitute covers. Think about that. It describes the condition of those whose sin the servant covers. In other words, the servant is not dying for the sin of good people. He's not dying for the sins of people who've got it all together, who are morally upright, who are pillars in society. He is substituting himself because we have gone astray. Because we have turned away from them. We are like straying sheep. And this is exemplified and made so clear in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died. For whom did Christ die? The ungodly. Verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. When were we reconciled to God? While we were enemies. This is, for, this is the one for whom the servant dies and suffers. Not for his own sins, not for his own unrighteousness. In fact, we're going to see in just a second. He was perfectly innocent, but he's dying for people who are ungodly, who are far from God, who have run away from God, who have strayed like sheep, who have turned their backs on God. Paul sums this up in Romans chapter 3 so beautifully. There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is no one good. Everyone speaks poor. Everybody speaks bad. Everybody's heart is wicked. You are utterly and completely lost in your sins. This is the one for whom Christ dies. We're like sheep going astray. But at the right time, Christ dies. For the ungodly. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Think, look at this. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is kind of a little rabbit trail. If Christ dies for your sin while you're his enemy, Paul then says, how much more now that we've been reconciled to God? If you are here today and you are a follower of Christ, if God dies for your sins while you hated him, how much more now that you're his friend? Oh my goodness. I, I don't think anybody can grasp that. That's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's just it's an amazing passage of text. Christ dies for me while I hate him. Now that I've been reconciled, how does he treat us now? We were like sheep. We were going astray. We've turned away. And then in verses 7 through 9, we see this courtroom scene, this courtroom drama. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence 
and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so now the servant is called to the witness stand. He is unjustly accused. But he did not open his mouth. One of the things that impressed me when we went through the book of Luke was how Luke kept hammering home the innocence of Jesus. Over and over, chapter after chapter, declared his innocence. Everybody declared him innocent. Pilate declared him innocent. The crowd declared him innocent. Um, over and over and over again, he was even Herod said, "I don't see any fault in the guy. Nothing worthy of death." And he opened not his mouth. And so the servant is on the witness stand. Charges are being brought, and he opens up, does not open his mouth to make a defense. He is utterly and completely innocent. He's done no violence, no deceit in his mouth. Folks, this, as we discuss the identity of the servant, can only apply to Jesus. Israel can't make this claim. Isaiah can't make this claim. David can't make this claim. Moses can't make this claim. Cyrus or Darius, none of them can make this claim. There's only one person in all of history who can make this claim. Only Jesus is qualified to serve in this role. I want you to note how, how Isaiah brings together both Jesus' righteous life, that is, he lived for our righteousness, and his substitutionary death. He had done no violent, no deceit was in his mouth. And yet he was led to the slaughter. And so we've seen the exaltation of the servant. We have noted briefly the suffering of the servant. And now what is the verdict? An unexpected exaltation. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God, the Lord, has put him to grief. This is troubling for many people. But I want you to know that this was the will of the Lord. In other words, these rather strange preceding events were not some tragic accident. Instead, the crucifixion of Christ, Calvary, was God's purposeful desire to fulfill these events. God's punishment of sin, his love for others, and plans to ultimately establish his worldwide kingdom required the removal of guilt to form a holy people, and he did that through his servant. And he serves as a guilt offering. This was the will of the Lord. And look at the result. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, even though he had done no violence. This was the will of the Lord. When his soul, ma- when, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, look at this, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. What? Wait a second, I thought you just told me that he was dead. That he made his grave with the wicked, and that he was with a rich man in his death. How is it that a dead man can prolong his days? How is it that a dead man can see his offspring? I'll submit to you there is one way that dead men can see their offspring, 
There is one way that dead men can prolong their days. It's called resurrection. How does a murdered man have his days prolonged? How will a murdered man see many offspring? With this perfect Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, who fulfilled God's law perfectly, died for our sins, lived for our righteousness, three days in the grave. The payment was made, and the evidence that it was an acceptable sacrifice that he was raised from the dead. And by his works, Isaiah tells us, many are accounted as righteous. Because of his works, many are accounted as righteous. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. By his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 14 goes like this. He entered, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. By his sins, we, or by his bearing our sins, we are accounted as righteous. He took on our sins and gave us his sinlessness. He took our unrighteousness and gave us his righteousness. So now we are the purified, righteous children of God. In the end, he's highly exalted. And yet, it, therefore, I will divide with him a portion of the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. God gives the servant all. He has been oppressed. He has been forsaken. He has been cut off. And now he has, been, he has given a portion with the great. Yahweh intends that the servant who gave all now will receive all. He was the exalted Lord, suffered for our sins, and then God highly exalted him. As I was wrapping up this message, I was reminded of the beautiful, beautiful Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Some of you may know it, but you would do well to read the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2. I think Paul plagiarized, or at least took the, uh, took the model, because how does it begin? Christ is highly exalted. Christ suffers for our sins and God bestows upon him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And this is exactly Isaiah's composition. He is exalted. He suffers. And because he is obedient, 
God highly exalts him and bestows upon him the name that is above every name and that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus is Lord. He is the name above every name. This is our fourth song. song. So as I conclude this, I just want you to note that this is the gospel in the Old Testament. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. The gospel is this, that we have sinned. Christ has paid the penalty of that sin. We are saved from God's wrath, and Jesus is Lord of all. I want you to understand that if you're here today, you've never called upon the name of the Lord. Maybe you've gone to church and you've just kind of gone through the motions. And maybe you're just a, a good person. Maybe you've been in this church for years. Even a leader in the church. You should know that there is a God who has created everything, including you. And as a result, you and I are accountable to the God who made us. And we have spurned his ways. We have rebelled against what he has called us to do. The Bible calls that sin. And the wages, as we talked about, the wages of sin is death. And so God's wrath will fall upon all who have sinned against the holy God. There is, but there is hope. You might be saying, well, there's no hope for me. There is hope. If only somebody followed God's law perfectly and stood in my place. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly, stood in your place, died for your sins, all of your sins. God's wrath is poured out on Jesus Christ. The wrath of God that is coming for those who are not in Christ was, placed, was poured out upon Jesus Christ so that Jesus bore God's wrath on your behalf so that you would have peace with God. That's the great exchange. That's the great exchange. The great exchange is that he will take my sins and bear God's wrath for my sins, but wait, it gets even better. And then he will give me his righteousness so that I am now in right standing before a holy God. I am sinless. My sins have been transferred to the servant, the sinless Lamb of God, and His righteousness has been transferred to me or imputed or credited to my account. So now God sees me in Christ without sin and perfectly right with Him. That's the great exchange. I think we are foolish if we think we can make a better payment than that. Let me try to pay for my own. I'll do good things. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm better than my neighbor. I'm better than a murderer or what have you. Me and God got a special side deal worked out. You don't. That's a lie. The truth is, is that if you are not in Christ, um, for lack of nice poetic language, God's coming after you. That's just the bottom line. We're saved. You say, well, we're saved from our sin. You're saved from God. You're saved from God. Because guilty before God, He is coming after you. I say that not to instill fear in you. It's just the reality of what Scripture says. 
the wrath of God. Jesus took that wrath, took it upon himself. Poured, God poured his wrath upon Christ, gave you his righteousness, so now you can be without sin. God is now not coming after you, but he is your friend. He is your ally. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. So I would urge you today to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. To be in Christ is to be to have God as your ally and not as your enemy. We are saved from God's wrath. Jesus is Lord of all. Father, we give you praise.